Well, good morning, family. How are we doing? You good? Me too. You got to preach it, brother, back there. All right. That sounds good to me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? As my son likes to say, no one, daddy. He doesn't know it's rhetorical. I'm glad he doesn't know that it's rhetorical. Uh, If you are a guest with us, I just want to welcome you here to Crossway. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. But more importantly, we want to welcome you to Jesus. Welcome to Jesus. Jesus gives strength to the weak. Jesus gives courage to the cowards. Jesus gives protection to the vulnerable. Welcome to Jesus. Jesus is here, and that's why we are here. Amen? We have been walking through the Psalms for several weeks. If you've been following along with us, so open up your Bibles to Psalms. If you don't know where that is in the Bible, it's right in the middle of the Bible. And if you need to borrow a Bible, we have a couple in the back by the sound table. Psalm 27 is where we need to be. In this psalm, we find that David is once again facing some of his enemies. You know, David had a lot of enemies. He was doing a lot of running for a lot of, a lot of years, most of his life. He was running from enemies. People were wanting to kill him. And in this psalm, we find that he's, he's got some enemies again that are harassing him. And he has a really good reason to be afraid. Yet in Psalm 27, we find that David is pretty confident. So if you're there, meet me there. Psalm 27, we're going to read it together. And then I'm going to pray, because you can never pray too much, right? Psalm 27, Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, I will not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. This one thing have I asked. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me. In his shelter in the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. And he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies who are around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Turn not your face away from me. Hide not your face and turn not away your servant in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. 
Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We've just heard the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a speaking God. You've spoken in the past. And you're still talking today for those that have ears to hear. So Lord, would you give us ears to hear? Give us ears to hear what we don't want to hear. Give us ears to hear what we need to hear. And minds to understand it and comprehend it and to believe it. Lord, we pray that you would be with us today and that you would speak. We've come to hear from you because we need you. And we, th- we thank you that you want to talk to us and you want to hear from us. So Lord, speak to us now by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times in your life have you heard someone say, face your fears? Like growing up. Raise your hand. It's okay. Most of you. Face your fears. We pretty much have all heard that. Betty Lou is someone that I would put in the category of a person who faced her fears. On the morning of July 28, 1945, Betty Lou Oliver headed to her job, just like she did every day when she headed to her job as an elevator operator on the uh, Empire State Building. It's a normal day. And on that particular day, due to thick fog in the area, a B-25 Mitchell bomber smashed into the north side of the Empire State Building on the 79th floor. And Betty Lou's car was on the 80th floor of the building, that side of the building. She was thrown from her car, and she received burns on her skin, and her pelvis and her back and her neck were broken. So I just want you to picture the pain she must have been in and the chaos and the adrenaline that's shooting through her blood right now, okay? Are you there? After treating the injuries, first aid workers put her on an elevator to send her down to the main floor to get her, uh, you know, to the hospital so she could get the care that she desperately needed. But the cables of that particular elevator had been weakened by the plane crash, and they snapped. They broke. And so her car that she was in, just picture this, dropped 75 stories to the bottom. Over 1,000 feet, she fell out of the, out of the sky. Remember, all the while having burns on her skin and a broken pelvis and back and neck. She lay in the bottom of the shaft in a smash car amid the bricks and the steel and the debris. She later told Time Life interviewer that she realized she had to fight to stay alive. It's a miracle she wasn't dead already, frankly. And she said, it just came over me. I've got to fight to stay alive. When a Catholic missionary was sent to her bedside bedside to administer the last rites, they thought she was going to die. She grabbed his hand and she said, but Father, I'm a Protestant. (laughs) Just hold my hand. 
just hold my hand. It's her way of saying, I'll be all right. That's some confidence, huh? After the rescuers cut her free and rushed her to the hospital, she made an astonishing recovery, and she returned to her job working elevators five months later. I don't know that I'd be getting in an elevator. I mean, that is someone who has faced her fears, right? So what is it that you fear? I'm just going to give you just a second to think about that, to kind of assess that in your own mind. You have to say it out loud, just in your own mind. What is it that you are afraid of? No, no kidding. Is it spiders? Some people, that's what it is. Is it losing your job? Losing someone that you really, really love? Is it being deserted at night out in the woods? Stranded in your car? Is it being made fun of by everybody in the school? What is it that you're afraid of? How are we supposed to go through life with confidence when there's so many things that we could legitimately be afraid of? How do we prevent fear from just absolutely confiscating our life? Do you know what I'm talking about? Just dominate our life. Fear tells us to respond in one of two ways, fight or flight. We know that. So when we get afraid, that's the, basically the only two options that we think that we have. We either run into it and fight whatever we're afraid of, or we run away from it. We get out of there, and we avoid it. But in Psalm 27, David shows us a third way that we can respond. Retreat into God. We must retreat into our relationship with God to fight the grip of fear when it comes upon us. And I just want to highlight this morning four moves that we can make to retreat into our relationship with God. And the first is this, to gaze at the beauty of God. We sang, already sang some songs that were about that. Right? About looking at Jesus. And the things of this world grow strangely dim. Right? Gazing upon the face of God. When fear attacks us, it demands our full, undivided attention. Have you ever noticed that? When you are afraid, everything else kind of recedes into the background. Like the bills don't need to be paid. I'm not even thinking about that right now. Whatever's going on outside my house, it I'm, I'm focused on whatever I am most afraid of at that moment. It, our minds tend to focus on that. We can picture the disaster that we just know is going to come at us. With gory detail, right? We all become prophets. We can predict the future. And it's always awful, isn't it? It's like in retina display, high definition, when we get afraid. So let me just give you an example. Maybe we legitimately have a reason to be afraid. Maybe we really actually do have a boss that has it out for us. They don't like us for whatever reason. They don't like us. And they're just looking every day for a reason to get rid of us so they can replace us with someone else. So fear kicks in. We go to our job every day with this kind of fear lurking in the background of our brain. Maybe today's the day I lose my job. Maybe the day, today's the day I get terminated. Isn't that a scary word anyway, terminated? So we picture all this stuff that's going to happen to us when we're afraid. We can literally picture him firing us in front of the entire, like, company. This big dramatic, you're fired! We picture that. We just know that's going to happen one day. 
We picture this. Our, li- our wife leaves us after we break the news to her because she doesn't want to be married to a loser. We become penniless due to the divorce and all the lawyer fees, right? And then we fall into a deep depression that we never fully recover from, so we have to live with, like at a shelter for men. But, you know, all right, all right? And then, you know, until one day we die and someone puts our body into a cheap pine wood box because no one remembers us, so they bury us somewhere in the woods in an unmarked grave. Like, that's, the, that's like the scenario that kind of goes through our mind when we're afraid. I just described someone's worst nightmare, right? That's what we think of. It's like a sad version of the direct TV commercials. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> the younger people especially know what I'm talking about. Go Google it, all right, if you don't know what that is. Fear turns whatever is attacking us or whatever's going on in our life into a really sad version of the direct TV commercials. That's what it does. It wants to be the one thing that we think about. So what is the alternative of focusing on our fears? I mean, some of our fears are legitimate. What, so what's the alternative? Like, this is the one thing I'm going to think about. The alternative that the psalm tells us is to gaze at the beauty of God, not the ugliness of the situation. That's our alternative. Look at verse 4 with me. I love this verse. It says, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. So here's what I find interesting about this entire psalm, but this verse in particular. It's almost like David doesn't give his enemies his full attention. Did you notice that? I want you to notice that. They're there. He mentions them, but they don't get his full attention. He doesn't really name them in this particular psalm. We don't know if they're like humans, if they're like Philistines or Midianites or something. He doesn't name them. We don't know if it's like a depression or an anxiety that he's dealing with or a sin, maybe something that's invisible. We don't know. It, they're, they're, the picture of his enemies is very fuzzy. They're there, but the details are sparse. I want you to notice that. I think there's a clue there. I think that's important. David desires how many things? One. One thing that he desires right now. Do you see how simple life gets for him? One thing is the most important thing to him. To be with God and to Gaze at his beauty. Gaze. That means undivided focus. It's just like, not a glance, not like checking your watch or your phone. Gaze. You ever gazed at somebody? It's hard to gaze at a stranger, right? They, they're like, call 911 or something, think you're a psycho. <laughs> but you gaze at, at, at someone that you love, you just get caught up in them. That's what's happening. He's gazing at the beauty of of God. He's put away all distractions that will block his view of God. Okay, I'm afraid. I don't want anything blocking my view of God. What do I got to do to get that out of the way so I can see God? Uninhibited, nothing's in my line of sight of God. That's what he's saying. When we become laser focused on the beauty of God, our fear begins to weaken. Doesn't go away. It's there. I'm just saying it starts to weaken its grips. The talons and the claws start to to just come out a little bit. It's amazing. The beauty has the power to dislodge fear, to displace fear. Hey, move over. This is here now. Beauty has the power to do that. And the greatest beauty in the world is the flawlessness of God. 
It's the perfection of God that he needs nothing. He supplies everything because he needs nothing, right? Uh, when, we, when we, my family, we moved uh, and took that long journey from Missouri to Washington, it gave me days and days to think about the decision that we made that, to accept the elder's call to pastor here at Crossway. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I was wrestling with some, some fears internally about that decision, along with the excitement. What is this going to look like for me? How, how's it going to affect me and my family? I could go on and on about it. These are things that were going on in my mind. And we made several stops on that journey. It was a great journey. One of the stops was at the Columbia River in Vantage, uh, Washington. I talked to some of you guys about that. You guys have been there. You know what I'm talking about. Well, you guys have maybe have been there before. I'd never been there before. And I pulled over. And I thought, oh, this would be a quick five-minute stop. You know, no big, we got a schedule. We're going to keep moving. You know, I was blown away by that river, the hugeness of that beautiful river, and I felt so small, and I loved feeling small. And that river being big. And I loved seeing all the colors, the different blues and greens of the river and the sky and the patterns and the rock. Like, that was my Grand Canyon. Do you know what I'm saying? It was awesome. It was gorgeous. And what happened was, I completely, yeah, this is a picture that I took. I was completely absorbed into the beauty of that vista. Without even knowing it, I had stopped worrying about all the little things I was afraid of. I didn't even know it until afterwards. I got in the car. Wow, I was just at peace. It was wonderful. All the fears about moving the family here, gone. My thoughts were at peace because I was gazing at something that was so beautiful. It was so huge and so almost flawless that it actually made me think about how much more beautiful the creator of that river must be. I mean, if that's how beautiful a river is, how much more beautiful must the creator of that river be? If that's just a refraction of his beauty, that's the kind of stuff I was thinking about at the time. When we are afraid, we should desire one thing. Our mind's going all over the place when we are afraid. David says, no, no, one thing. Gather that up to this one thought. Gaze at the beauty of your Lord. Let him be the one thing in your field of vision and get lost in that. Just get absorbed into his beauty. You know what this means for us, just practically down on the ground level? It means we need to put away the distractions. I mean, don't we do this? I'm awful this, by the way. So I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone else in the room. I go the distraction route, and that's a real common coping mechanism, right? And I don't know, what is it for you guys? For me, it's Netflix or a movie or something, all right? I'm going to stay up a little late, or I'm just going to turn something on on the screen. I'm going to kind of zone out. But here's the problem with that. Distractions don't dislodge fear. Distractions distract us from what's afraid, but they don't get it out of its proper place. And so when the distraction is over, when the two hours are up from the movie, or the game is over, or the kids go back to their parents' house, or whatever that distraction is, guess what? Fear's there waiting, and you may have like, lost a lot of time, so maybe now fear's even more intense. It doesn't work. We've got to clear the distractions out of the way. We need to turn off the phone. Put the phone down. Hey, guess what? When you're afraid, phone's not the answer. Phone's not the answer. You're not going to find the answer there. 
We need to turn off the stock market. That's not the answer. You're not going to find comfort by checking it one more time. Okay? We need, we need to stop reading the comment section on the Facebook page. That's not the answer. That's a distraction. So what do we need to do? We need to intentionally focus on how beautiful the Lord is by seeing Him in the Scriptures. Go to those stories. You want to get lost? Don't get lost in a fake story of a movie. Get lost in a real story in the Word of God. It's great to want to get lost into a bigger story. This is a big story that you and I are part of. Amen, John? This is a big story. Get lost in those stories of how God rescues those that are helpless to rescue themselves. That's the story you should read. That's a beautiful story. Go to those stories of how God gives grace to sinners instead of giving them what they deserve, which is fairness and justice. He gives grace. This is how we get absorbed into the beauty of our God. We also retreat into our relationship with God by making this move. We pursue the face of God. Pursue the face of God. Let's look at verses uh, 7 through 9. They're, they're there on the screen for you if, you if you need it. Hear, O God, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, Lord... Your face do I see. I'm doing it. (laughs) Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. David has gone from talking about God to talking to God. Did you notice that? You need to notice that. It's important. He's progressed now from gazing at God's beauty to wanting to encounter God. He's, through prayer, trying to lay hold of God, to apprehend Him and experience Him. That's what he means by he's, when he says, Lord, your, your face do I seek. He is wanting to be in the presence of God. He's saying, I want to know you intimately, face to face. That's how you know someone. You see their facial expressions, right? You can know what they really mean. I want to be in your presence. I want to be in the same room that you're in, Lord. I really want to know you. This is a bold prayer, right, family? This is a bold prayer. It's got exclamation points at the end of it. You remember Moses? Moses wanted to see the face of God. What did God say? You can't see my face. But I'll tell you what, you can see my back. At least you see my back as I pass by you. And David is saying, you know what, God? Your back's not good enough today. I need to see your face. That's a bold prayer. That's a bold prayer. This reminds me of when, you know, Jacob wrestled with God. Or Jacob said, I will not let you go till you bless me. Right? Except for David... God is the blessing. Being with God, being in his presence, God is the blessing for David, not something else. He wants to know the Lord. And not only that, but he, he kind of quotes God's own words back to him. Right? He's saying, like, God, you said seek my face. I'm doing it. I'm seeking your face, so don't hide your face from me. You started this. 
I'm just responding to you. Prayer is always a response of God has first spoken. God has first spoken. He's pastoring God for his presence. You know, guys, the reason that we pray isn't just, is not merely like to get something from God. It's, it's to get in God's presence. It's to get God. It's to get God. When we're battling fear, we need to know more than just true things about God. We need to know that God's real. Like, he's real for real. I need to know that when I'm afraid. And so what I'm saying is there is a subjective aspect to praying. There's an urgency. There's some volume. It's a little messy. It's okay to ask God to show up when you are afraid. It is okay to ask God to come close to you when you are afraid. It's okay to pester him about it. God, I want to be with you. I want to be with anyone else. I've got to be with you right now. If you're gripped with fear, have you done this? Have you pastored God? I'm going to be in your presence. I'm just asking. I'm not accusing. I'm just asking a question. We need to do this. I'm not talking about mechanically going to him and just checking something off our spiritual to-do list. Lord, I need to be in your presence. And then we get on to something else that's more important. That's not what David is doing here. I'm talking about spiritually clinging to the hem of his garment in desperation through prayer. That is how we pursue the face of God. Desperately. God, if you don't come through, it ain't going to happen. We commit ourselves to the fact, to the idea, that nothing has the power to free us from fear except the very presence of our loving Lord. And we are ruined for anything else. It's His presence or nothing. That is praying with desperation. Oh Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. That is a song of desperation. That should be, that is what it means to seek the face of God. There's nothing else that, that can happen to change this. But even more, when we seek the face of God, there's another move that we need to make. We need to wait expectantly for the Lord. Wait expectantly for God. Look at verse 14. It's the end of the psalm. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, fear is fine with trying God until God doesn't show up quick enough. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about because some of you are chuckling. Right? I try God. I mean, I'll try anything. But he hasn't shown up quick enough. And when he doesn't show up quick enough, fear tells us that God didn't work. God didn't work. God didn't come through. So you know what? It's time to try something else. It's been five minutes. Let's try something else. When we're faced with danger, or we're faced with potentially losing something that we treasure. Because that's part of what our fear is, too. Something we love is about to get taken away from us, right? So fear kind of reveals what we actually treasure. It's no problem for us to wait 15 minutes for God to show up. 
depending on the situation, we may even we'll wait patiently for 30 minutes. I mean, after all, we wait that long for the police to show up, right? Or fire department to show up, maybe longer. So we can at least wait for God that long, maybe an hour or two. But if it's longer than an hour or two, or a day, or a month, and he hasn't showed up, we start to get a little fidgety, don't we? We start to get a little antsy. What's going on? Fear starts speaking to us. Fear, listen, fear is not only a bully emotion that wants to dominate our thoughts, it's also a very impatient emotion. Fear wants solutions, not ideas, not good news. It wants practical solutions, and it wants it right now. Thank you very much. Like right now. That's the only thing that's going to calm me down. That's the only thing that's going to, you know, settle me down. And in these moments, we need to know that waiting is one of the ways that God matures our relationship with Him. It's actually how He draws us closer into that relationship that we have with Him. Waiting is how God helps us retreat into our relationship. You know, we're going to need to wait. I'm sorry, I know you didn't want to hear that, right? Like, no one wants to download that sermon, right? Right, Cal? Nobody wants to download that sermon. I mean, I would love to be able to tell you that here's what you do. Okay, you, you seek God's face. You seek to be in his presence. You gaze upon his beauty and his perfection. And, you know what? and then he shows right up. But I can't tell you that because that's lying, right? But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you what David knows. And David knows two really huge facts. David knows that God absolutely rescues his people. And God often waits to the 11th hour to rescue his people. (laughs) So I've got good news, bad news. All right? (laughs) Good news. God absolutely rescues his people. God often waits to the last minute to rescue his people. Like often. So he, he often waits to like the, there's no hope. When we think the clouds just can't get darker, the pain just can't get more intense. Ah, and then God comes. David, maybe he's remembering how God rescued Isaac. Remember Isaac on Mount Moriah? At the last minute. And God supplied that substitute, that sacrifice, Right? Or how God rescued the Israelites by opening up the Red Sea. He made a way when there there was no way. He made a way. Like he created a way. It's not like he opened the Red Sea and like there was like a hidden road under there. There wasn't a road under there. He made the road at the last minute. Not when the enemies were coming over the mountains, right? When they were there. Or maybe he had in mind when God rescued his people when they were starving in the wilderness at the last minute. You know what I'm doing right now for those of you that are afraid? I'm telling you stories that are beautiful so that you might get caught up in it. Look at Deuteronomy 8.3. Moses is reminding the Israelites about God. And he, God, humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, 
nor did your fathers know. They couldn't even say, well, that's okay. Hey, dad went through that. We'll go through that, right? Dad dealt with this, and so this is what this is. Someone could tell me. No one knew about this. Why did he do that? This is interesting. That he might make you know (laughs) that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why does God usually wait till the 11th hour to save? So that we would know, experientially know, that the Lord is our life and nothing else. Nothing else. As Ed Welch says, it isn't deliverance if it isn't the 11th hour. So we are to wait with expectancy. Do you know what that means to wait with expectancy, guys? You ever seen a dog at a door waiting for his master to get home? You ever had a dog like that or had some of your family have a little dog? And, and, and they're, they're, what do they do? They go to the door, they go right to the edge, like right where the crack where the door opens. You know what I'm talking about? You picture this and they're just sitting there and they're just waiting. They're just waiting, and their ears are perked up, and their eyes are gazing. They're locked on that, like right where the door opens. They're looking at that door. And every once in a while, I say they're listening. They're listening for the sounds of of the footsteps, maybe. You know what I'm talking about. And every once in a while, they stop breathing, right? Because because they want to hear better. Maybe, is that them? Was that my master? My master coming home? Why do they do that? No matter how much noise you make, you're not going to distract them, right? Can't break the concentration. Why? Because that dog believes he is expecting his master back any minute. Any minute. He's going to come through that door. That one. I know where he's coming. It's going to come any minute. Brothers and sisters, that is how we are to wait for the Lord. We are to wait with expectancy. Not with laziness. Not with cynicism. We wait like a German shepherd. That's how we wait. At the door. God will answer us when we are in trouble. God will rescue. So we wait expectantly for Him. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I fear? There's one other move that we make to retreat into this relationship we have with God, and it's this. We need to see the sacrifice of God. We need to see the sacrifice of God. Each of these moves that that we've talked about already are based on one huge assumption. It's an assumption that is not explicitly stated, but it's an assumption. It is there. It's a massive assumption that David has a covenantal relationship with God. And David absolutely believes that God loves him with a love that is unbreakable. This is the ultimate source of his confidence when he should be terrified. He should be locked up. His confidence is not in his clarity of being able to see how beautiful God is, right? It's not in his ability to pursue God in prayer. It's not even in his strength to wait for the Lord. It's not in him at all. He's able to do all of those things only because God has given the one thing that he needs to live life. A 
relationship bound by covenant. That's it. Look at verse 10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Mm. Here is the problem, though. David breaks his part of the covenant, right? Like repeatedly, like often, right? <laughs> this is a problem. How can David know that God is not going to abandon him, even though the closest members of his family would abandon him, if his sin was detestable enough? Like, how can he say that? How can he know that for sure? If all of David's confidence is built upon knowing that he has this unshakable relationship with God, then he better have a really good answer for that question, right? How does he know? And you may be asking that question today, too. How do I know? How do I know? How can David be sure he has this lifeline of a relationship with God when he constantly breaks covenant and he consistently abandons God? How does he know God's not going to abandon him in return? It's a pretty important question, and he needs to have a good answer for that, and so do we. The answer comes in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He has seen the sacrifice. For he will hide me in the shelter, in the, hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. David is talking about the tabernacle. That's the tent. That's the tent of the Lord where you go to be with God. Remember, David was there to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Remember, he's like, I'm going to go into his holy temple. I'm going to go into where God is. So he went where God was. He went to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and he went to be near him. And what did he see in the tabernacle? What did he see when he got there in the tent of the Lord, in his shelter? He saw the priests, didn't he? And he saw the lambs and the goats. And he saw the sacrifices being offered to God on behalf of sinful people. Hmm. That is his shelter. That is his covering and his protection. That is his rock that puts him out of harm's way. A sacrifice has been made for his sin. He should die, yet God provides a sacrifice to die in his place for his sins so that he can be in covenant relationship with God. God provided that for him. God made that way. And it causes him, as he goes in the tabernacle and he sees the sacrifice being made, it causes him to want to sing to God and make melody, right? And shout and rejoice and go nuts, basically. Listen, we know even better than David did. We have an even better sacrifice than he did, don't we? We should be even more confident than David, and he's pretty confident right now. What gives you and I the strength to wait expectantly on the Lord when we're scared instead of believing, you know what, this time God's going to let the axe fall on me for all the sin that I've done and all the rebellion that I did. 
what gives us confidence that the Lord is still in relationship with us, even though we've been constantly selfish with him? We've broken covenant relationship with him. So what gives us that confidence that we're still in that relationship with the Lord? How do we know that we have a relationship with the Lord? It's a pretty important question, isn't it? We know because we see the sacrifice of God. We've gone into the true and better temple, which is Jesus, right? We've seen that sacrifice that was made on our behalf. We look to Calvary where the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world died for sinners like us. All of our sins, past, present, and even the ones we hadn't even thought of yet to do. He's forgiven them all. We see them all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it makes us sing and shout for joy. On the cross, Jesus cried out in anguish. Jesus cried out trembling in fear and in pain, trembling for help. And God the Father did not come. He's surrounded by his enemies, and they wanted to devour his flesh. They ripped the flesh right off his back, right? The Father did not come. His Father did not rescue him. He did not listen to his cries. He said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Right? Quoting the Psalms. In his 11th hour, God hid his face from his only son. Right? Jesus went into Gethsemane, the garden, right? Lord, I seek your face. Hide not your face from me. What happened? God hid his face from him. Jesus was abandoned by his father on the cross. Oh, yeah, and his mother, Mary. He was abandoned. All like sheep, we've gone astray, right? We abandoned him. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he make that particular kind of sacrifice, family? Why that? Here's why. So that we could be 100% confident that God will never abandon us in our hour of need. When we are surrounded by enemies, we can be confident, we can be sure, we can look at the sacrifice. We can look to the sacrifice that was made. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we can see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Don't look at your fear. Look at your Lord. Look at the sacrifice that God made for you through Christ. Look at how much he loves you. The cross is God's love. Because of Christ's sacrifice, you are with the Lord, and the Lord is with you both now and forevermore, and nothing can separate us from his presence. It's that big of a sacrifice. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I love you guys. I'm going to pray. Okay? Let's pray.